it's Healthcare Unfiltered. It is Tuesday morning and it is your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, literally all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, policy, and everything else, including healthcare law. Today's podcast is very important, is very unique. I have the pleasure and honor of actually hosting a book author, a physician, Dr. Jay Joshi, who wrote a book, Burden of Pain, A Physician's Journey Through the Opioid Epidemic. Dr. Joshi considers himself a physician entrepreneur, and appropriately so. He's completed his medical school and internship at the University of Illinois Medical Center and his MBA at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He is an advocate for patient empowerment and innovation in healthcare. He incorporates entrepreneurial strategies and behavioral economics into his clinical practice to improve the patient experience. But this book is about his experience, unfortunately, with the law. Dr. J. Joshi was indicted because of what was perceived as over-prescribing for uh, opioids and narcotics. He did serve 11 months in prison from a 15-month sentence, but there was a, there's a lot to this story that you need to listen to understand what actually happened. There are so many lessons that we can learn from this story. I'm not going to be really a spoiler in the introduction of this podcast, but I do need you to read this book and really understand what actually happened. I can tell you the one spoiler I will share with you is Dr. Joshi right now is working on basically vacating the verdict, vacating the verdict. That should really tell you a lot. He has a lot of conviction into what has happened and he has the ammunition as well as the legal case to potentially vacate the verdict, which really is a very important piece of information and should really tell you a lot about today's podcast. I am pleased that Dr. Joshi wanted to share his story on today's podcast on Healthcare Unfiltered, <clears throat> and I would like to hear from you what you thought about today's podcast. I appreciate your support. And don't forget to find my podcast anywhere you consume podcasts. Don't forget to rate it, subscribe to it, and write a brief review so I know what you think about the podcast. Visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Also, check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Without further ado, a very important exclusive burden of pain, Dr. Jay Joshi, physician, author, and an entrepreneur who did have to serve in prison, but the story is shared today on today's podcast. Jay, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate you taking time of your schedule to join me. No, thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'd say I wish I have you on the show for something else, but um, it, it's 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 a, it's a little bit of a painful read um, to start with. Uh, so I don't want to really give a lot of spoilers for listeners, but I do think it's an important uh, uh, part. But uh, uh, without telling us about the book, just maybe a little bit about you as to who you are, and then we'll we'll get right into it. Certainly. I'm a physician who has always thought about healthcare from an entrepreneurial standpoint, meaning as physicians, we're trained to think a certain way, follow the clinical guidelines, adhere to what is the most likely differential diagnosis and proceed accordingly. Thinking entrepreneurially often requires a challenge to that orthodoxy, where you're always looking to innovate or find new ways that can make a thought process, a clinical decision, a therapeutic, more efficient. And over the years, that has translated into different entrepreneurial endeavors. I invented a medical device that automates urine output measurements. I started the first primary care clinic in Northwest Indiana that incorporated behavioral health 
as a form of telepsychiatry into the primary care practice. So these types of endeavors were always focused on what are the clinical standards of care and what can we do to improve upon that? And that mindset really informs how I look at medicine and how I practice it. That's great. That's a that's a great intro because, um, you know, you're a primary care physician and, um, you know, when what made you want to do primary care as opposed to uh, want to be subspecialized? This was back in 2008, 2009, when there was a big trend towards looking at primary care as the inflection point of the healthcare system. I think before that, there was this trend towards specializing, looking at super specializations as the means of accelerating your medical practice. I think we started to see a trend away from that and I caught onto that. And so I thought, what can we do to look at primary care as this quote unquote inflection point for not just care coordination, but also for modeling a population-based model of care. And after medical school, I got my MBA. I started to look at healthcare from a more holistic standpoint, and I developed what I like to call orthogonal skill sets. So as a physician, you think a certain way. When you get your MBA, as you know, you develop a new set of skills, but also a new way of thinking. And so I started to look at healthcare more from a strategic standpoint. And primary care is the one field that allows you to exert a certain level of influence in the care coordination that's both upstream and downstream, before the clinical encounter and after the clinical encounter. And those touch points are unique to primary care that you don't get in other specialties. In other specialties, healthcare being a very manufactured-based model, it's always touch and go, touch and go. A surgeon performed the surgery, has the immediate follow-up, and then he or she is done. A specialist gets the referral, sees the patient, addresses that one specific condition or need, and then moves on. But in primary care, you have that nexus of relationship with the patient that, as I mentioned, goes before and after the encounter and can literally influence the overall care experiences. And I thought, there's a lot of potential in primary care. Let me explore that. And that's what kind of led me down that path. And, you know, I mean, to your point, from a primary care perspective, you know, you know, you you get to know this patient sometimes for 10 years before they get, unfortunately, diagnosed with serious illness, let's say, or the cancer or something else. You've had that rapport. And there are many times I've encountered patients where whatever I recommend, they said, well, I'd like you to run it by my primary care. I think the relationship that you form as primary care physician is really very unique. But 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 you you talk about in your book about this different model that you did. Um, what is that model? Like what, what was so different about the model of care delivery that you established in Northwest Indiana versus other primary care clinics? I try to be as comprehensive in the care services as possible. What I often found was that patients would have to go to different physicians for different clinical conditions. And that would often create undue burdens on the patient. So for example, a 26-year-old carpenter, union dissolved, is now a freelance worker, has shoulder pain, and has developed anxiety due to work instability, wants to come and see a primary care physician. Often what would happen is that that patient would have to see two separate physicians, one physician to manage the anxiety long-term, one physician to manage the shoulder pain long-term. And I felt that for a chronic care model, it was very intrusive on the patient. Now, mind you, for that initial diagnosis of anxiety, I do believe that there needs to be psychiatric input, specialty input. And for that initial diagnosis of shoulder pain, whether that's an impingement or a work-related injury, there needs to be orthopedic consultation. But following that, subsequent to that initial workup for months, years on end, that patient would have to go to different physicians every month that's time off work, that's travel, that's expense. And for many people, those costs add up and they become very burdensome on the patient. So I thought, let's combine and integrate the model of care. And so one of the major conditions that I integrated was substance use dependency. I would provide behavioral health through telepsychiatry for patients that may have diabetes, hypertension, but also substance use dependency. 
and I would provide a medication known as Suboxone. So if a patient comes in, typically what would happen is they would see a primary care physician and then they would see a separate addiction specialist. And then they would have to go see a psychologist or a counselor separately. I thought, why don't we integrate all of that under one care umbrella so that on the days when the patient comes in, they can see the counselor, they can have a substance use dependency workup and have a primary care workup, all to provide a certain level of experience of convenience for the patient. And so that model is, while it's unique in how I phrase it, it's relatively commonsensical when you think from the perspective of the patient that the patient is the one going through that care journey. He or she is the one expending time and cost and resources to experience healthcare. From my perspective, I always thought, why don't we make that experience as convenient for the patient as possible? That's the model of integrating various facets into that healthcare experience. So in that experience, in that uh, example you gave, like there's a psychiatrist that you work with who does a televisit or you perform that, uh, that televisit? It would be a psychologist performing the telepsychiatry visits. So I would partner with third-party vendors who would then provide that telepsychiatry. And the reason why I did that is because there was often a six to eight month waiting period to see yeah. a live counselor or psychologist. And I thought, well, why don't we just integrate that through a telemedicine platform? Now, mind you, this was back in 2017, 2018, pre-pandemic, before all of this really caught on. So it was unique in that I would see the patient's live in person and then they would go to another room and see a psychologist yeah. on a computer now you won an award i mean <laughs> excuse me i mean obviously you did so well so what i mean somebody gave you an award in the community or something so there are a few awards for new venture new entrepreneur venture but i think the one thing we're most proud of and which i'm referring to is the ncqa patient-centered medical home and it's an accreditation that many primary care practices receive for the quality of care provided and one of our main focuses and why we were successful in that application was that we provided a care coordination model which is just a fancy way of saying we integrated various facets of the primary care experience into one umbrella and i think for patients it's something that can increase adherence because it's human nature. If you make something easy, it's more likely to be done. If you provide all facets of a care experience under one umbrella during one care experience, it's more likely to be done by the patient. And I think that was really what we we hung our hat on and that was really what got us that award and made us known for as a high quality primary care institution. Now, everything was going nice and dandy, and then um, you obviously expanded or you hired a medical assistant, at least from what I read, and it's not clear to me. Uh, I read, you know, kept reading it, uh, read it twice, but somehow you found out that the medical assistant was forging prescriptions, but it wasn't really clear to me how you found out and you know, suddenly you said you had a medical assistant and then she was forging prescriptions and staying late forging. And but but it, I may have missed it. How did you even find out that she was forging prescriptions? I got a letter from her insurance company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, now I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she has that she was prescribing that she has other physicians that were prescribing the same medication, right? Yeah, and so it's asking me, are, are you aware of this? Uh, you know, it basically had me giving her high doses of Adderall, Xanax, what have you, and then it had her uh, receiving the same medications from other physicians. No, and, did, uh, you, you did give her medications, like you did give her. So on two occasions, she mentioned she was not able to see her physician and she couldn't afford taking time off, so I saw her on two separate occasions, but nothing to the amount is what was written and what was alleged in that insurance paper. Got it. And then she went to other physicians and she got additional, like similar medications and that's yeah. really alerted the insurance company. So, so that, is, that is when you decide to file a police report. Yeah. So I filed a police report. This was with the Munster police uh, informing that they uh, uh, should look into this patient. Uh, I provided uh, the insurance letter um, and that was it, you know, and unbeknownst to me, effectively what had happened is this employee was, effectively writing scripts under my name and then selling the scripts. Now, this was back in 2017. So this was before the time when everything was digital and automated. So people were still using paper mm -hmm. prescription. The mm -hmm. prescription pad could still be written. And 
not long thereafter, everything became automated. So what effectively had happened is this person was writing scripts, then using my credentials, either selling the medications or giving them to our friends or whomever. And I didn't know the extent of it. I simply knew that she was using my credentials to write prescriptions that was beyond what I had seen her for in those two visits. And so I did what I felt was the appropriate thing. And I filed a police report in that. What effectively had happened is in this era where the opiate epidemic was really kind of taking a life of its own before we started recognizing that, hey, you know, our policies are a little bit too extreme. This was at a time when it was really reaching its peak hysteria. They effectively brought her in and we're still learning exactly what had happened. We've filed requests to unseal a lot of the evidence and that's now starting to manifest with the complaint that we filed with the Office of Inspector General. Effectively, the monster police asked her, was Dr. Joshi supporting you or involved with you in any capacity? And I think they told her to say yes, at least what, based why would on- Why they tell her to say yes? That's what I saw in the grand jury indictment. The way they had it phrased, they said, was Dr. Joshi, no, no. They had her say, did you ever write prescription forgery scripts without Dr. Joshi's consent? And she said, no. And so the question then becomes, why would they have her do that? Well, I think what they were really looking at was targeting a physician who had the red flags to say, well, something must be going on. If in his practice, there's an employee that's doing something like this, something must be going on. And I think that's when they started to then flip it to say, well, let's use that employee to go after this physician and then target him in a way where we look like we're addressing a major drug dealing outfit. And but, but did you, when, when you decide to file a police report though, did you think about calling your lawyer? Did you call a lawyer? I mean, you just went to file a police report. You did not think, let me call a lawyer just in case. I did not think that. I, I don't understand okay. why I would need to call a lawyer. I, I would imagine that they would follow up with next steps. Right, then, right. No, at I, that mean, point, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, but, but then, then, then one day you're in your clinic and the DEA just storm in. I mean, and yeah. I think you actually describe in chapter four of the book a very, uh, very unique dramatization of what actually happened. And you were very effective in actually describing what happened. Um, tell me about that day. I mean, this is really, um, it seems like it was completely unexpected. They just pulled the doors, walked in. I, I know, I felt like I was watching a movie. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Um... One of my patients who was there for a telepsychiatry visit uh, ended up committing suicide just a few days well, after. Well, I was going to get like, I mean, you know, it was not really, her name is Megan, and you actually yeah. talk about that, and she said that you abandoned her during that day. Are you certain that the suicide was because of this? I'm not certain, but there is a long-term history of patient abandonment leading to suicides. We're starting to see that now more and more. And there's a VA study done out of Alabama where there was a, there's a physician, Dr. Cortez, who was looking at patient abandonment, whether an abrupt discontinuation of medications leading to adverse events. And so am I a specialist looking at that end of life situation where I can say definitively this was it? No, but based on my experience being there right. and just enduring that trauma and seeing how it affected everybody, it's very difficult to think there would be something else that would have triggered that event in the patient so close to the DEA raid and the time in which she committed suicide. Tell me about the DEA raid. I mean, what, what was, because I mean, I don't know, tell the listeners about the DEA raid and tell me why you did not call a lawyer that day. Well, I didn't have an opportunity to call the lawyer that day. I, they came in, they had these vests, they had AK, they had, I don't know if they were AK-47, but they were some pretty big guns that they had requiring two hands to hold. And they basically had everybody pinned up against the wall. They had me pinned up against the wall and they were just rummaging through everything. And they took certain staff into rooms, screaming and yelling at them. After about 30 minutes, they took me into the police station, which was right across the street. Like you could literally walk to the police station. 
and they put me in a holding cell. And I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, why didn't I know to call a lawyer? Why? There's so many situations where in hindsight, you can look back and say, well, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? But until you've actually experienced that and to see the intensity by which they come after you, you, you could I have said, oh, don't put me in a holding cell. You have no right to hold me there. I, I mean, in hindsight, looking back at my rights, I, I had a right to walk away, but I mean, I was scared. I mean, you, you're looking at like guys with bulletproof vests and guns coming in. And if they're telling you to go somewhere, you're going to go. And so I didn't have an opportunity to call a lawyer. Yeah, I did call my malpractice attorney after all of this had happened. But in the moment, uh, I was sure. just scared. Sure. No, I can imagine. Jay, I'm going to read you a paragraph. And then I want you to react to it because um, it struck me a little bit. And I want to read it to you and read it to the listeners. But in struggling to make sense of the senseless, I perpetuated my own demise. I provided fodder for the agents, a semblance of perceived guilt out of genuinely pure innocence. In an otherwise normal state of mind, I would have realized the agents were manipulating the conversation, teasing words out of me only to later twist those words against me in my state of shock, however, I simply acquiesced to their line of questioning. I guess, I mean, very powerful paragraph, but why would they target you? Like, why? Why? Because as I'm reading this, it just sounded like, you know, people are out there to get you. You seem a very nice guy who is a good doctor, good primary care doc, won an award, taking care of people. Why would the feds target you? So I, I don't want to simplify it to say good guys and bad guys. And, and I'll get to that paragraph because that's a very important point to mention. Uh, let me answer that question quite comprehensively because I think you're raising a very good point. Um, nobody is a victim here. This is a system of misguided policies that are inappropriately targeting the healthcare sector for a public health crisis that goes beyond health care. Now, at this time, the DEA, and they still hold on to this notion, even though I think they're in the heart of hearts, no, it's not true, believe that prescription opioids or prescription misuse in general is perpetuating the societal harms of overdoses and mortality rates related to overdoses. So that's the conjecture that they have. So they look at, so law enforcement looks at physicians with an eye of suspicion. And when you look at somebody with an eye of suspicion, you start to see things that may not be there. So whether we want to call it targeting, whether we want to call it coming after me, uh, it's more subtle than that. It's these perceptions that law enforcement have based on failed policies that they're not ready to admit are wrong that are leading them to think a certain way. So when there was this employee who is coming in with these prescription forgeries and I report them, law enforcement's gonna look at me and say, well, are you a part of it? How do I know you're not a part of it? Well, it's almost as if, if a criminal comes to the law enforcement and says, there's another criminal I wanna report, that law enforcement agent's gonna look at both the person reporting as a criminal and the person being reported as a criminal because that's how law enforcement looks. So when I filed that report, it wasn't as if the law enforcement was simply coming after me as an innocent physician that they wanted to, with malice, come with, with ill intent. They were simply looking at this entire situation with red flags all around. But were they looking at other people? Like, were they looking at other doctors? Like, or was it because of the police report that, like, I'm trying to understand what triggered them to specifically yeah. look at your situation? So I don't want to speak for other physicians. I don't want to put anybody in a bad situation. But without naming names, in Northwest Indiana, there have been multiple raids on primary care offices. There have been multiple instances where law enforcement have come after primary care physicians. And have they reached the extent in my case? No, they haven't. 
but there is a well-known antagonistic relationship between primary care physicians and law enforcement in Northwest Indiana. And you will see that in certain pockets of the country. You'll see that in West Virginia. You'll see that in parts of California. And I can't explain how those relationships formed, but I can explain what they result. The result is that there's an antagonistic relationship between healthcare providers and law enforcement that create an era of suspicion. Now, that suspicion can manifest when a patient comes into the trauma bay and the nurses say, oh, don't talk to law enforcement. Don't talk to law enforcement. They'll bring you into the case. They'll make you violate HIPAA. You've seen examples like this. There's instances where there's an inherent distrust. What my case shows truly epitomizes in the worst way possible is what happens when that distrust, that suspicion comes out of control. And to your point, the passage you reference, effectively concocting guilt out of an aura of innocence. What effectively happens, and this is the important thing here, the way law enforcement looks at uncertainty and the way medicine and healthcare providers look at uncertainty is vastly different. Now, what is uncertainty? Uncertainty is where you don't know something to the fullest degree. So if you are a patient and you come to me and you say, I have a history of anxiety. These are my medical records. This is the medication that I'm on. Can I continue my medication with you? Now, if I, as a physician, choose to trust you, I will verify everything. But ultimately, there's a certain degree of trust I have to make. I don't know 100%. I can't read your mind. But what I can do is verify with the medical records, review the prescription records, perform a urine screen, other ways to verify that trust. But ultimately, there's always a degree of uncertainty in any clinical decision that's made in healthcare. In the legal world, when it comes to law enforcement, that uncertainty is perceived to be an oversight. Now, the Supreme Court made a ruling in 2022 that states that perceived oversight can no longer be used as a basis for a crime. I was an amicus party on that Supreme Court case. So I'm starting to understand how the law looks at uncertainty and how medical providers look at uncertainty. It's starting to get better. And to the DOJ and DEA's credit, they're starting to rectify a lot of the misguided policies from before. But at that time, in 2017, 2018, if you as a provider acknowledge that there is uncertainty or some degree of unknown in the clinical decisions that you're making, that would be perceived as reckless oversight. And, and you did mention later on in the book that you found certain things about yourself you were not aware, and it made me wonder if these were a trigger for the feds, for example, like you mentioned that you were of the highest prescribers, or you put some stats that you learned about as part of the indictment uh, in terms of uh, uh, number of scripts or how frequent or things like that. Do you think that was the trigger that made them because they end up sending like undercover agents to you. I mean, they basically yeah. sent some something triggered them to even send undercover agents to impersonate patients and tell you that they have leg pains and things like that. So there was something that was that, I mean, I presume they're not sending undercover agents to all primary care clinics in, in, in America. They don't have enough agents. So there may be some kind of like, you know, red flags or something, whether it's correct or not, different story. But I presume something triggered them to send these undercover agents to your clinic. Okay, so l let's tie those two pieces together because I think that's important. So this employee that was forging script under my name, as she was doing so, the number of controlled scripts, controlled substances prescribed from my practice became higher than average. That triggered the DEA. The DEA then sent an undercover agent. So the way the DEA works is that anytime your controlled substance count of Schedule 2, Schedule 3, Schedule 4 reaches a certain threshold, they'll start sending undercover agents to your practice. So that's what happened to me. And this is for all physicians across the country. This is an established practice that the DEA borrowed from the Bureau of Tobacco, Fire, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm, where they would send straw men to effectively solicit an illegal crime. So what had happened, putting it all together, there's a rise in prescription count. 
from this employee. I then reported that employee. And this is where I think the disconnect happened. Because there was already an elevated count, they were already looking at me suspiciously. So when I reported this employee, now this was before the DEA started giving monthly reports and quarterly reports. So I wasn't aware of what my count was. And so when I reported that employee, they brought her in. And I think that's when it led to that sequence of events where, hey, well, look at his numbers. He's clearly a high prescriber, at least according to these numbers, whether that's truly a high prescriber or not, who knows, but the numbers suggest that. And then they came in with this employee. So I think they effectively looked at it like, well, these two events look quite suspicious. They both can't be just coincidences. He must be doing something. So that's where it all came together. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, then they stormed this. And like I said, I mean, for listeners, I mean, reading the dramatization of this, it was like I was watching a movie. Um, then they took you uh, somewhere in the, and they put you in a, like a room or something. And I, I and I, it wasn't really clear to me. It seems like you signed documents without even consulting with anyone. You actually, which I understand in the shock, but um, you say here, I obeyed, uh, which is talking about some documentation that they ask you to sign. You said, I obeyed, not because I understood what I was signing, but because I was not capable of anything else. I was like a toddler mimicking commands desiring to please, unable to understand, but complying nonetheless. Um, it's very difficult for me or anybody else to really understand the trauma of what you went through. And, and probably all of us would, would sign whatever they give us. But I think it's fair to say that many listeners would say, you know, don't sign anything unless you really have a legal representation. Take me through that, that, that situation, that event that happened to you. Well, I spoke to the DEA as a physician speaking honestly about how I care for patients. I thought that was enough. I thought that was the right thing to do. And it's very difficult to explain what goes on in those raids and what happens to people. I mean, it, it really is like a war event. Like even thinking back now and kind of just revisiting the certain incidences, pieces of what had happened, what they do, how they come in, how aggressive they are. I, I, I have no nothing else to say except that I was scared and I signed whatever they told me to sign. I, yeah. I have there's nothing else I can say, no other justification. And in hindsight, yes, of course, everybody who I talk to will say, why didn't you get a lawyer? Why didn't you say no? When, did you, you, when did you get a lawyer? And how did you find a, how did you find a lawyer? I mean, like I don't have a lawyer today yeah. that I can call. Like, how did you find a lawyer? I called my malpractice company and they assigned me a local attorney. Okay. And that's the I mean, so they assign an attorney based on what's going on. So so then after this, there was an indictment that was filed. Yeah, about four months later, there was an indictment. And what were like how many counts or what did they say in terms of the indictment? So the indictment uh, contained the, this number 6,000, which is a number that they kept harping on. They're saying like, I wrote 6,000 pain scripts. They kept saying, wrote 6,000 pain scripts, 6,000 pain scripts. And then what they filed besides that number, which has since been proven uh, false, they uh, found um, four counts. So every time that undercover agent who came in a cramp-like leg pain came in and I had prescribed him, Norco, they consider that a count. So it was a four counts. So four visits. Each visit was considered a crime. And then that was the basis of the indictment. And for the grand jury, uh, I didn't actually get the transcript until after I pled. But the transcript was basically that entire employee just making false statements and effectively saying, I was running a pill mill right across the street from the police station. So, so when you get this indictment, um, you entered the plea bargain. Yeah. And why did you do that as opposed to saying, I'm not guilty? I went through two attorneys. Both of them said, you, you effectively have to plead. You are a physician. 
in Northwest Indiana in the middle of the opioid epidemic, there's nothing you can say that's gonna win you in court. And I try to say, well, what about my tapering? I cut his medication down. What about ordering the imaging studies? What about checking his prescription records? None of that holds up in court of law. And believe it or not, the medical diagnoses and the clinical fundamentals do not have to be admitted as evidence in the court of law. And that sounds very bizarre, but the courts have a very unique system that's not, it doesn't appear sensical to somebody in healthcare. The courts have a way where they can admit and disregard clinical documentation if they don't feel that it's germane to the yeah, actual I mean, the judge the judge decides who to admit into evidence what to admit uh, into evidence versus so so let me put it to you this way then if you distill the entire clinical encounter to just a decision to continue a patient's pain medication then of course you're going to find somebody guilty but if you include the tapering you include the clinical decision making you include checking the prescription records then it becomes a very different story but by selectively choosing what you want to look at you can create the perception of guilt and this is this is not just for prescription opioids. This is for abortion. This is for medical billing. Effectively, what happens is that the law selectively chooses what is clinically permissible, and then that then determines what is legally admissible as evidence. And so it's it's a very bizarre system because you have the people, the prosecutors, the judges who have every incentive not to want to bring in the clinical documentation making that decision yeah i mean the judge i mean obviously both sides contend what to be admitted to evidence and what's not and then the judge has to decide on that and it's hard to really guarantee what the judge will decide they may allow admission of certain documentation they may not we really don't know so what was the plea tell me about the plea and the sentencing well the plea my lawyer at that time essentially said, like, if you just plead, you don't put up any fight, more likely than not, you'll get a borsh, you'll get a probation, and you'll just move on. And it was under that pretense that I said, okay, let me just plead and then move on with my life. You know, this well, is- You wouldn't lose your license. Nothing will happen. I would regain my medical license, which I eventually did, but years later. So after you get indicted, effectively, the medical license can go to that state summarily suspend your medical license. So you get indicted, your license gets suspended. It's reflexive. It's standard policy for all medical license boards. I mean, some, you, you can fight it, but, it, you know, I mean, how many how many fights can you really take on at one time? Right. I mean, the legal fees, the pressure, the stress of it all. And so my license was suspended. And so from my understanding and how it was presented to me, this was Norco, low dose, tapered the patient, provided clinically correct guidelines, followed the clinically correct decision-making, just plead and you will get probation and you can move on with your practice. So it was under that assumption that I moved forward. Well, okay. that's not quite what happened. So yeah, so you then you, that was your understanding. You Your license was uh, suspended, you pleaded guilty. And what were you sentenced? So I was sentenced, they sentenced me to 15 months in federal prison I ended up serving 11 months. 15 months in federal prison. And this was not something that he even knew was going to happen. No. What? I mean, how did you take this? This is, You were told there's going to be probation and everything would be fine. And then and then here you are going to federal prison for 11, for 15 months. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the shock of it is just, it's incredible. It says, it, it's such a traumatic and bizarre experience that often you find that you struggle to even relate and to communicate what you went through in a way that people can understand. It's, it's very difficult for people to understand like how a physician could be indicted after filing a police report for providing prescription opioids to a person presenting with pain, stating they don't have a substance use disorder, stating that they have a history of taking this, checking the prescription history, verifying this, and then moving forward. At what point 
can what else can you do as a physician if you have a new patient what else can you do to ensure that this patient is legitimate and that you're providing the right oversight and we so had no choice but to serve in prison you know th this concept of innocence and guilt when it comes to the clinical world is very unique compared to other situations of guilt and innocence because you're dealing with behavior that's very complex and requiring decisions that require a certain degree of trust. And in the legal world, when you say you trust something or you implicitly assumed something, as I had mentioned before, it's spun in a way where it's perceived to be a lack of oversight. So in healthcare, there's no degree which you can check everything. At a certain point, you have to make certain assumptions. It's just the nature of any complex system. But it's within that complexity that they can pick and choose points at which they can say, well, that's a presumption of guilt. Well, I'm not going to ask you the silliest question in the world, which is how was yeah. your prison experience? Because it was terrible and awful, I'm sure. But it I guess what, when you were in prison, in addition to the obvious... Um, that you know, nobody want to be there. I mean, I don't know, like take me through your mindset. Did you ever think like, where you start to thinking, how do I fight this back after I'm out? Like, is that when you decide to write a book? Like how, what happened in prison? Um, and when was that, 019 or? This was, um, this was uh, May, no, so June, 2019 to, uh, May 2020, so at the start of the pandemic. So uh, right when they were um, triaging um, inmates for the pandemic and providing home confinement for high-risk patients, that's when I left. Uh, my experiences, to be honest with you, were not that bad. Um, I, I learned very quickly to just stick to myself. Um, I would basically spend all my time in the chapel and library reading and writing. I wrote the first version of Burden of Pain all by hand while I was uh, in prison. So, do they, give, do they give you a computer? You have limited time with a computer, but I wrote everything by hand. So you have 15 to 20 minute intervals. And most of the time you use the computers to use a secure email server to connect with your family, friends, what have you. you it's not like you can use a computer like a Microsoft Word processor. So I wrote everything by hand. Um, you know, I spent the time reading, writing, um, what I really learned from that overall experience is that I, I have a certain level of belief that in the end, things will be right. And I met the federal prosecutor who has since become a judge in my case. My case was actually one of the uh, um, points he highlighted in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I spoke with him. Um, I filed a complaint with the Office of Inspector General for the DEA misconduct. That was after you were released after I was released, but the foundations for how I can vacate that conviction began when I was in prison. I would read on the law, I would read upon motions to vacate unlawful convictions subsequent to plea deals. So I never lost this faith and I still haven't lost it. In fact, uh, it, it's coming closer and closer to fruition. Um, I never lost this belief that in the end, it would turn out right. and. I I knew that I was going through something and I just wanted to stay focused, hone my writing skills, hone my reading skills, write this book and learn what are the steps I need to take to fix what was going on. And so you started writing the book, you wrote by hand, uh, like you said, uh, we'll go, we'll go through why you decided to write the book, obviously, but, but um, you were reading about how you can vacate the, the, the verdict. So in other words, despite the fact that you, pleaded guilty, there's a there's a way in the law that you could be proven innocent afterwards. So all convictions, whether obtained by trial or by plea, require a factual basis. Um, the Office of Inspector General, which oversees the National Provider Database, which is something all familiar uh, physicians are familiar with, verified. I never wrote 6,000 pain scripts. Actually, the number is somewhere around 1,300, something like that. So that number of 6,000 uh, is, is factually in, incorrect. Uh, second of all, 
there was never any criminal intent. Uh, effectively, what the prosecutor stated was that I should have known better. I should have not trusted that undercover DEA agent. But the Supreme Court ruled in 2022, as I mentioned in a case with Diamond Amicus Party to Ruan v. United States, that you can't convict a physician of a prescribing crime unless there's true criminal intent. And so the lack of criminal intent, the lack of a factual basis, that is the grounds to then vacate a conviction if you can demonstrate misconduct from a federal law enforcement agent, which I'm waiting to get the results of. And as mentioned, I filed a complaint with the Office of Inspector General that got transferred to the DEA Office of Professional Responsibility as an investigating agent looking into my case. Once that misconduct is verified, that provides the elements that are required to vacate a conviction. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, let's say John Smith out of rural Illinois gets swept up by the feds. That person, let's say he pleads guilty to committing a murder in Alaska. If there's no proof that that person ever stepped foot in Alaska, then that conviction, even if obtained by plea, is not, is not valid. But so, I mean, I applaud you for being your own advocate and looking at all of this while you're in prison. But uh, Jay, I mean, shouldn't your lawyers be looking at this? I mean, I presume you're paying them a lot of money. And uh, like, I'm just, I mean, I don't know how much of this was paid by the malpractice company that you have versus your own pocket. But I kind of think like, you know, the lawyers should be saying, these are the steps that we could take to vacate the verdict or something like that. It seems to me that you were the one who's initiating this, and then you probably fed this to the lawyers. Yeah, I am. So uh, to answer your question in the sequence, the malpractice uh, did not cover anything. Um, you covered was, everything from your own pocket? Covered everything from my own pocket. Are you Even, able to share with us how much you paid or not? Uh, uh, you let can me... just say north, north of something or south of something. Well, it was it was six figures. It was a healthy six figures. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Um, and another uh, case that came up, that Joshi v. Joshi case, where there's another individual by the name of J.D. Oh, yeah, Joshi. yeah, I heard about that. Somebody who sued you uh, because he said you're impersonating him. Yeah, and then the DEA submitted that case as evidence in uh, in the criminal case. It's very difficult to explain to a person rationally all the nonsensical and irrational things that had happened. I mean, you have another physician in another state claiming I'm impersonating him. Uh, you have DEA agents claiming I'm writing 6,000 pain scripts. It's, I'll put it to you this way. You know, propaganda exists because propaganda works. If you want to target and mislabel somebody, you simply state lies about that person as loudly and repetitively as possible. And that's effectively what had happened. Now, to answer your question about lawyers, there's, there's a disconnect between the legal world and medical world in terms of representation. And the analogy I would like to share with you is that of game theory. So a lawyer, a defense attorney, appears before the same judge, same prosecutors, multiple times. A physician, God willing, would only appear in that situation once. So for that physician, he or she is going to defend to the death what he or she believes is right. But that defense attorney is balancing what the client wants and what is best for his or her relationship with that prosecutor and judge long term. So the priorities are different. And I'm not stating that defense attorneys are unethical and that they don't represent their clients properly. I'm simply saying that the priority structure for defense attorneys is different than what would be the perceived priority structure of a physician as a client. That's why I couldn't get a physician you know, to say anything. That's, but uh, that's, uh, that's really uh, interesting, actually. I think that's very insightful uh, thought. I did not think about it, but I think it's... Uh... That's why I couldn't get any attorney to represent me besides doing a plea deal. Now, regarding this motion to vacate, here's mm -hmm. a situation with that. It's going to cost me another healthy six figures. But by writing this book, and I can't name the name, but a very prominent attorney has reached out to me stating that he would, at a very high discount, agree to represent me 
to submit this motion to vacate my conviction. Uh, this was after I wrote the Supreme Court brief, after Burden of Pain came out. So as a, a physician who has the stigma of a conviction, it's very difficult to get adequate representation. And uh, there's so many instances of this. I mean, think about that one student who went to prison for allegedly murdering his girlfriend in high school. There's a prominent podcast about that. That individual could not get legal representation until that podcast created all this noise, created all this awareness, brought all the evidence forth. And then attorney said, hey, well, let me go ahead and represent you and get your conviction vacated so you can leave prison. And now he's a student at Georgetown Law. So there are many instances where the typical representation of a lawyer serving a client and going through the legal motions, standing up for what's right, kind of, you know, uh, to kill a mockingbird style, that, that doesn't exist in today's modern healthcare. Clients have to be their own advocates, particularly physicians have to understand the law better than the lawyers even understand their law if they want to be adequately represented. And the reason why I'm doing all of this work, all this advocacy, all this legal writing is to lay the foundation so I can give all that work to an attorney and say, now is the time to vacate the conviction. So when did you, you started writing the book uh, when you were in, in prison, Jay, and um Amazing, you wrote this by hand, uh, handwriting. Why did you want to write a book? One, I had to. Um, I was struggling with severe depression. Um, anytime I wasn't focused my mind on reading a book, reading some content, intellectually stimulating my mind, or writing, expressing my emotions, I would think about my situation. I would think about my circumstances. I would think about where I am. And that's, um, it's, it's not a good place. It's not a good place. Um, yeah. You know, your, your mind has a tendency to run in cycles. And unless you actively reinforce positive thoughts in your mind, it's always going to reverberate to the most negative. And in that situation, I, I had to hold on to this belief that in the end, things would be right. And I had to actively train my mind to focus on reading and writing. How much research did you have to do? I mean, I, you know, you're a trained physician. I mean, you're not a lawyer, but you're probably now a lawyer by just uh, virtue of what you went through. But how much research did you have to do? And did you have a lot of access to everything that you wanted in prison? I did, actually. There's a separate computer that gives you access to legal cases. Um, for all the stereotype about the prison experiences and how rough everything is and whatnot, and those elements existed, um, I really stood out by not engaging in anything. Um, so obviously I didn't get any perks. I didn't have uh, any sort of amenities. I lived a very bare bones existence, but I was able to just stay away from any sort of adversarial elements and just focus on reading, writing, staying in the library, staying in the chapel. And that gave me access to the law library so I could read legal cases. I could read up on text. I learned about a 2255 motion, the elements that are required to vacate a conviction. I learned about case studies. I learned about criminal intent, the elements required, both active elements and passive elements. So I, I I spent a lot of time and I had a lot of resources I mean, that were available. I mean, like the security people and everything, were they nice to you? I mean, people taught, see all, all kind of things in prison. I mean, the inmates, uh, were they like, you know, you're like a big shot doctor coming in. Were they like <laughs> abusive, whether it's physically, mentally? I mean, I don't know. Well, you, you get tested. So if I, so when I got there, everybody knew everything about me because somehow they get the, my, uh, legal documents, it gets leaked to them somehow. Um, so everybody knew everything about me. Um, I would say that the other Asians who were there were probably more aggressive towards me. But when people would come up to me and uh, test me and kind of see what, who I was and didn't really see much arrogance, I mean, I really wasn't arrogant and act like I was better than anybody else. Um, if anything, I probably came across as overly friendly. So people are like, why is this guy talking to me? Um, but because I didn't show much arrogance, 
And because, you know, it, it's funny. It's like by, you know, I would, I was, when I got there, you know, I was, I had a job where I'd clean the toilets, I'd clean the kitchen and I would do the work and then I would leave. I wouldn't complain. I wouldn't. So normally what happens is like you either complain and do the work begrudgingly and try to find, you know, some loopholes where you can get an advantage or you pay somebody to do the work for you. I, I would do that. I mean, it was like 10 minutes of work. So I would just do the work not complain and then go back to the library and chapel and read. And it was, I just wouldn't engage in whatever was going around on me. And I think the the officers saw that. And so they more or less saw me as somebody who wasn't really causing problems and just sticking to myself. So they liked me in that capacity. I mean, they didn't do me any favors and they weren't overly nice to me and they didn't give me any sort of, um, protection or anything like that but they were like okay well here's a guy who's just sitting here just doing his work let him be and were you released after 11 months versus 15 because of covid no um the way the system is set up is like if you don't have any issues while you're in prison which believe it or not everybody has an issue somebody gets everybody gets into something somehow um but if you have good behavior then you get out uh, a certain time early and then the last month is a uh, home confinement so it was basically whatever was like the bare minimum i had to spend uh in prison that's the time i spent what's the situation now to, like what is actually going on you're um are you back licensed now or not yet um, full you're unrestricted licensed. full unrestricted medical okay. license you reinstated have clinic? you have a clinic i do reinstated into Medicare, and I'm opening my own clinic in the same area where I was practicing before. And I'm working very actively with the state of Indiana in their harm reduction policies. I uh, okay. meet with the Mental Health Association of Indiana. Uh, I am very open with everybody about what had happened. As a matter of fact, uh, I pass out naloxone, the Narcan, to law enforcement agents, asking them that if they ever encounter a patient overdosing, give this to them. So you're fully licensed. Uh, you have an office that you are opening. Hasn't opened yet. No, by the end of July, beginning by of August. By the end of July, we're open. Um, and then you are just working on vacating the verdict, which we'll find out about uh, in the next few months. Uh, probably, probably next uh, year or two years. And the, here's the situation. Um, so this conviction as it stands has no impediment in my clinical practice anymore. Um, you know, by the grace of God and by, you know, just working with the Indiana medical licensing agencies, working with Medicare and, you know, to their credit, they returned everything to me. So that, that, that conviction normally is a death sentence for a physician where, you know, you cannot go to practice. Uh, what's interesting is that conviction has no impediment in my ability to resume my practice. I want it vacated because I owe it to myself, to yeah, that yeah. person it's, back um, in federal prison. When I was, you yeah. know, in a state of mind, I told myself I would see it through. Yeah. And so instead of walking away from it and effectively saying, well, you know, this is part of my past, I, I want to, you know, continue to make it part of my story. And so yeah. what's going to happen is probably before the end of this year, the motion to vacate would be submitted. And then it takes one calendar year for the federal government to either challenge it or accept it. And then based upon that, the judge then makes the determination whether the motion to vacate passes through. So this is, again, as with everything in the legal system, some things that should take months end up taking years. I want to finish by um, asking you the impact on your family. Um, you talk about uh, in your acknowledgement about your wife Sonia and your son Shiva, and um, I can only imagine what they went through. Um, I don't know. Tell me, tell me. I guess how you handled this, and I, 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 I was getting emotional as I was reading the acknowledgement, and I'm sure yeah. you're probably getting way more emotional than I, I was. But I certainly could feel, could feel what you went through, and as you described this, Jay, to me as well. If there's anything else I should have asked you. I would like to know so re listeners can hear about this and viewers and 
I don't know. Is there a, you have any feedback about the book so far? It's been out there for about a month or two months, and yeah. maybe you can share with us some of the reception. Yeah. So a, a couple of things. Um, uh, to answer kind of sequentially. Um, yeah, the impact on my family has been pretty bad. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, you know, coming from the Indian community, uh, you know, it's a, a very uh, academically driven community. Something like this creates an immense amount of shame on um, on a family. And my parents felt it. Uh, Sonia felt it. Um, when Shiva comes of age, I'm sure he will start to feel it. He's only five right now. I've kept him pretty sheltered from this. I did everything I could to make sure I always spent time with him, that none of this affected him. And thank God he's, you know, such a smart, loving guy. Um, you know, God's blessings that this didn't really affect him and anything like that. Um, in terms of questions, um, should have asked, uh, um, I like how you challenged all the assumptions. I want people to challenge the assumptions. I want people to challenge why I made certain decisions, how things went the way they did, because I wrote the book in a certain way where I was brutally honest, where you can question, why, did, why didn't you get a lawyer? Why did you sign that? Why did you just plea? I want to be radically transparent is that term. And the reason, because one out of every three physicians gets a malpractice case. Obviously my situation is dramatically different, but I wanna share my story. I wanna share things I could have done better, share it in its most honest way possible so that people can see that, yeah, this is a really crazy situation and that we need to learn how the government looks at this type of behavior and what we can do to ensure if something like this happens, we never put ourselves in a similar situation again. And um, in terms of the reception, um, it, it's it's actually- before, before you turn about the reception, did you have struggle finding a publisher? I mean, I published a book as you know, and it's yeah. not really easy. Um, and I, I don't know, like I, you know, um, I think you are publisher is Hounds, um, Hounds, Hounds to, uh, Press. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough topic. It's yeah. a very tough subject. It's very important. I would imagine it's not easy to find publisher, but I'm projecting. Uh, well, that's a correct projection. I was rejected 300 times by different... <laughs> uh, I by can different, relate, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, uh, different publishing houses and different literary agents. I, I counted up the rejections. It's about 300. You, you're right. People didn't want to touch the subject. I would begin by sharing all the legal documents. So I was very transparent in that. And actually I have a zip folder that has all the legal briefs, all the documentation from the Supreme Court brief to the DEA misconduct in my case. And I just put it all in a zip file and I'm very open and I send it out to people. And I think that it's important to discuss that. Um, uh, so yeah, it was very difficult. Um, in terms of the reception, um, it, it's garnered a significant um, positive reception from the chronic pain community. Uh, the patient advocates are the ones that are really galvanizing this. Um, what's interesting is that I feel a lot of the medical community who look at this value my transparency above all, and the people in the chronic pain community advocate the fact that I'm willing to speak out on their behalf and really just throw myself out there. Um, it's one of those situations where um, I, I want to be as honest and transparent as possible in the hopes that like when people look at both the good and bad in my story, the things that, why did you do that? And the things were like, wow, thank you for saying that. All of that, I want all of that just out there so that people can see the story. And I feel that it can be a positive for people who may be going through similar but maybe not as severe circumstances and say like, listen, we have to tell our stories in healthcare because the stigma lives in the silence. Jay Joshi, um, really, I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. Um, this is, I know it's not easy. It's a great book, um, a Burden of Pain. I think everybody should really read it. Um, it's unfortunate events that led to writing the book, but nonetheless, I, I, we still want to want people to read it. So Dr. J. Joshi, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time.
thank you so much, Dr. Jay Shoshi, for being with me on today's podcast. I really appreciate the time that he spent with me. I appreciate the honesty and the raw truth that he shared with all of us in terms of what has happened. I think the dramatization of what has happened to him is well described in the book. And you must read it to understand what he went through and put yourself in his shoes so you can actually probably understand the issues and the ramifications. In the back cover of the book, it says, a tragedy unique to modern American culture, the opioid epidemic incited a flurry of news coverage, health policy banter, and ultimately arrests. And I'll leave you with that. You can find this book anywhere you consume books. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Hippocrates. Healing is a matter of time, but it is sometimes also a matter of opportunity. And until next time, take care.